Welcome uh, to the panelists and welcome to those watching. Uh, my name is Sam Lang. I work with Quorum Sense and this webinar is basically a follow-up on the wind grazing innovations case study we released a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so that case study covers off um, two particular wind grazing techniques, so multi-species wind crops uh, and also bale grazing. So I assume um, most people here and most people that watch this recording uh, will have had a look at that case study and and watch that uh, production and had a look at the data and some of the details and stuff that sit um, below that. Uh, and this is, we just really wanted to do this um, in order to create an opportunity to just to dive a little bit deeper into some more specifics that were hard to capture um, in a 20 minute film, despite the great job that Dean did there. Um, and so just to introduce people, um, we've got um, Dean Parker, who is our Quorum Sense Storyteller, who did most of the case study production. Um, so it's his handiwork that you've seen there. Uh, and then we've got most of the case study um, participants that um, were good enough to, to, to share what they're doing and what they're learning and, and, and give us their time today. So we've got Dylan Ditchfield from down in Southland, um, dairy farm there. Uh, Ross Monaghan from AgResearch, who has been um, and still is doing a trial at Dylan's farm down there. We've got Claire Buchanan who's with Align Farms in Mid-Canterbury uh, and Greg Lowe also um, dairying in Mid-Canterbury. So the other two um, that are not here were Josh Bradfield who's a chief and beef in South Otago and Mark Anderson who's actually just down the road from him on a dairy farm. Uh, in terms of um, just for anyone um, new to Zoom webinars. Um, I don't mention this too many, but um, we'll be using the Q&A box down in the bottom there. So um, please make sure to flick your questions in there um, and I will basically go through them and try and keep some order. I've got a few questions myself that I'll probably use to kick us off um, and we'll just go from there. Um, there's also, if anyone wants to share links or anything like that out of interest, you can share that in the chat the chat function down the bottom as well um and yeah aiming to wrap this up at one o'clock or sh very shortly afterwards um just to cover off no such thing as a bad question um this is an opportunity to um, if you've got ideas or if you've got questions then this is probably one of the best opportunities you get um you've got a great range of experience and different contexts and skill sets um here to bounce your ideas off so please don't hold anything back and otherwise, I think we might crack into it. Um, so, I want to make a start on the multi-species winter cropping aspect. Now, obviously, with, with the two techniques that we've focused on here, there is some overlap, so no doubt um, there'll be a bit of that. But just in terms of these winter crops, one thing we probably didn't cover off so much, and this is particularly right, that Greg and Claire was what drives your choice of species and the and the rates that you use um, and has that changed have those species and rates changed as you've gained more experience with these techniques um, you want to start Greg oh, I can do um, <laughs> the, we just sort of got the advice from uh, from John Oak to, to get us started there. Um, it hasn't, this this year's crops were changed when we're taking radish out. I've got a neighbour now who is growing fine seed crops and we don't want any cross-contamination or anything. So we've just been a little bit more fussy there about what we're putting in. Um, but yeah, trying to just throw lots of good, good stuff in there. Is uh, quite important, I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, and I guess the five five groups are the main thing, aren't they? Is what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, similar to us, we don't have you know a perfect mix yet. We're still figuring it out as we go. Um, we last year our our mix was supposed to be brassica dominant, but it ended up being cereal dominant, and we think that was actually some some regrowth as well as what the seeds we had put in the ground. Um, so this year aiming to be more brassica dominant. Um, but yeah, again, having the different functional groups in there and yeah, we'll probably have a play and have a few different um, blends and different paddocks to see what works best. 
Probably a good point, actually. We, yeah, the brassica dominant for winter, yeah, just to sort of almost guarantees you a bit more yield, I think. Yeah. Cool. So you're kind of picking the picking the key species in this case of brassica that you want to get your yield out of, and then kind of building your building the rest of your seed mix out from there. Is that the is that the thought process or? Yeah, for us, and we worked with a few different um, seed companies, trying to talk to them a bit about other cropping farmers and making sure, um, as Greg said, we're not using radish or any other species that are going to impact on neighboring farms. Um, yeah, and mostly just getting advice from agronom agronomists on the actual rate of seeds. Yeah. Cool. In terms Same of the. Of, um... Sorry, Dane. Um, there's quite two interesting um, approaches here with what we've seen um, with the mid Canterbury mixed croppers compared with Josh, who's only doing kind of eight or nine species. Um, and like Greg's saying, what he's seeing is um, a lot higher yield of edible tucker um, as opposed to, you know, some of those species there for other purposes, you know, conditioning the soil, breaking it open, soil biology and the like. What the approach that I've done on my farm is of um, looking at those areas in a three-year cycle. When the first year I'll put in heaps of species, um, you know, to build build the soil, and then on this next this winter I'm going to try Josh's approach and put more edible species or more higher rates of edible species, um, knowing that I had done that previous work the previous winter with the likes of the cereals and the rye corns and the sunflowers and the like. Well, yeah, okay, so it's three-year three year rotation. Yeah. Those paddocks are all winter. Yeah, it's like a runoff where you were just wintering there. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll do, after you've grazed it, what happens then? Um, haven't got that far in the strategy yet, Greg, but I'm hoping that I will move and just basically without too much glyphosate be able to move into a pasture dominant um, par, um, mix and then just incorporate it back into the young stocks diet Aye. for allocation. Yeah. Awesome. And coming to the uh, the topic around some of those, you know, the, the quality of forage when you actually come to grazing it because I know there's if you sow some of the species that are quite common in these mixes and sunflowers and cereals even the even the slower maturing ones um, often they're you know um, fully gone to seed so nest brown and stalky by the time you get to June July grazing and there have been a few farmers that have actually shifted back their um, establishment dates sometimes to even early January for example um, in order to have higher quality forage um, at winter, and I guess there might be a, a yield hit there. But has that has that been relevant for any of you? Um, and I'll bring you in there, Dylan, as well, because you've um, you do have some experience with these crops as well. Ah, uh, yes. So, well, um, yeah, this last year we had um, mixed species, and we the date uh, I think it was probably about six weeks later than we did the year before, and I think it was some um, mid December. And prior to that, it was kind of, I think it was late October. Um, so it was obviously quite quite different. Um, and what we found in the first year is that a lot of faber beans and a few other species that had gone, gone past the use-by date. And whilst they did a lot of good in the soil, some of them, the foliage that, you know, that was there to, to, be, to be eaten wasn't there anymore because they basically rotted away. Looked fabulous in the, in the autumn. Um, and you, I mean, you could hardly walk through the crops, but by the time winter came, they'd kind of gone past that. Obviously, the sunflowers do that anyway, because um, they're there for a different reason. But um, starting it later, we didn't have quite the same yield, but there was a different season, uh, other factors at play. But we, we had definitely had more, more of the crop available for what you know, for the cost of wheat in the, in the previous year. So, yeah, it was a good move. Yeah, last year was our, our first winter sowing the crop and we are dry land. So we did it in January, um, but we had a very, very dry um, autumn and that definitely impacted um, yeah, the, the palatability of it. Um, so we're hoping for better results this year, but we are going to put some in before Christmas, probably in the next week or two. And then yeah, we'll do some later in January just to see the difference. 
Yeah, we did our first slot mid-February and the quality of that through June and into July was really good. We'd still had some in August and it got pretty rough, um, but we were losing stock from the runoff as they'd come home. Uh, and our last slot went in, the one we looked at last year, that was a bit earlier, that was more mid-December, I think, and by the end it was getting a bit chewy, so definitely a seeding data something to consider. Um, we're putting some in shortly, so <laughs> since from this conversation I might split it half in December and half in January, just to um, hedge our bets, I suppose. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, we've actually um, done the same on our block there um, as well. Some's gone in two weeks ago and um, some's going to go in after some arable crops in January, February. And um, I think we'll end up putting the lighter cattle on the higher quality or the smaller cattle on the higher quality crops and, and the bigger ones on the and anything that's a bit more mature and um, cut it that way. Um, awesome. Cool, cool. Well, uh, the, the Q&A panel is pretty quiet, but um, I know there's a few people online that have, uh, tend to have a lot of questions. So um, I'd encourage you to um, start getting some of them into that Q&A box. Otherwise, you're rolling off my questions the whole time. Uh, the Probably want to, um, we'll just switch into maybe into the bell grazing a little bit um, while those, while those, wait for those questions to come in. Um, and I've got a few here, and the first one I'd like to go with, with is, you know, both yourself, Dylan, and Mark, um, who are the two farmers that I'm aware of that have put the most sort of time and effort into developing bale grazing on your dairy farms. Both of you, South Otago, Southland, sim similar-ish climates, I, I suppose. Um, are there any challenges or advantages of bale grazing in your area versus other parts of the country from your perspective um, and I'll throw that to Ross as well um, after you perhaps Dylan um, if you want to go first. Yeah I'm sure um, I would say uh, more challenges than well the perception of more challenges because of course we're very wet and I'd say yeah the, I guess the, the rule of the um, most Southland farmers would say you can't you can't um, winter on grass in Southland, and Targa would be very similar. I'd say, particularly in some of their clay soils. Um, we are in northern Southland, so we're not quite as wet as some some other parts. However, you know uh, we still can get quite wet, and we winter on a runoff, which is has some wind, some heavy soil types up on the tops of it. So, for example, of We've had foil of beet and, um, and chow or, or kale on some of those paddocks. And um, well, I know when we had foil of beet, uh, some days I couldn't even drive a tractor through. It was that, the ruts were that deep and I couldn't physically get bales to the cows because um, it was so wet and this wet heavy soil was so heavy. And yet on those same paddocks this year, we bale grazed and uh, hardly made any mud at all. You know, so it was incredible. I, I wouldn't have believed it if you didn't see it. Um, obviously managed differently. So that, that's a perception, I think, but it's not so much, it's about how you do it. So if, if we were moving cows daily, um, whether it be uh, square breaks or uh, strip grazing, we would make mud, would definitely make mud. Um, and giving the same amount of, um, of feed, but shifting every day instead of every three days, for example, then, um, we would be making mud for sure. And if we you see that in Pat and a lot of farmers down here were doing baleage, but with in rings and shifted them every day and they just turned up just like you would see in a typical crop scenario. <clears throat> so um, while they gained not plowing the paddocks up initially, um, that was, you know, from, from grazing them on was all back to what it was, would have been with um, with conventional crops. So uh, and the reason I say that is, is that my belief is, is, and I'm not sure, Sam, if you've got those videos that I sent you through, but the cows basically, once you give them the amount of area and the amount of bales they, in one, one block, the cows tend to sit and stand on the bales a lot. And 
And because they've got a three-day break, on top of that, they're, they're full and content a lot for a longer period than you would if you feed them daily. So they just they stand there and they chew their cattle. They sit on the bales and they're not walking, which was what you see a lot on conventional winter crops or even on you know daily shifts and, and grass. So if they're not walking physically, they're not doing the damage. Um, and so that's that's the theory I have at the moment around why we don't make the mud as um, in, under that system. Um, yeah, so that kind of, that's, that's probably the challenge. It's, it's a mindset challenge. It's not actually a challenge for me. It's not. Um, we had some snow drifts that came through and we made some mud in the corner and I videoed all that stuff. I've got it on record to, to show people if they want to see it, but I just went in and just tilled it up in the spring very briefly and drilled in some seed and then we just harvest, harvested some silage off the same paddock um, a month and a half ago. So, you know, whilst the damage we done was probably 2% of the whole area we, we bale grazed, I had to lightly till her up and drill in some seed. Um, and that to me is, is you know, negligible really. What was your process leading into um, what, how, what paddock selection and process from 12 months ago? Yeah, sure. Uh, on the dairy platform, <clears throat> so we we carve our cows on bale grazing. Now that's how we got into it, actually. We started off just uh, carving them on to see what, what would happen. And we selected our worst paddocks because I guess we're looking at it as a kind of a grassing um, type of tool. And so over three or four years of bow grazing the same paddock, you should have had the bow should be the bow should have been on, you know, fairly much 90 to 100 percent of the whole paddock. And it's the seed from the bales that go into the ground that's in the litter that's left behind that germinate, and that's where your new where grass comes. So it kind of, kind of depends on where you get your bales from and what seed you get. So you might have a you'll have a naturally multi-species paddock by the end of it, <laughs> or different yeah. patches, possibly, if you got it from different sources. Um, yeah, what was the question again, Zoe? Well, um, yeah, leading into, say, for your winter bale grazing, yes. well, we, up here we're putting, because we're putting kale in all multi-species, like the kale paddocks have been ploughed, and we've marked around there, but the multi-species, we've just taken oaks off, I'll get a, a lick around up and then direct drill the um, multi-species crop in. Yes. But how are you growing? Do you grow five tonne of grass and then pop the bales out, or...? How does how's that system working? Yes, so we're still we're still trying to get ahead around this that how that works. But down here, as you you're aware, that's quite wet in the spring, so making hay in the spring is not really a yeah. So we we've just taken off um you know three and a half to four ton of silage, um and and baleage uh, off those paddocks in the last well in the last two uh, six to eight, eight weeks, and and then we'll get a cut of hay, um, hopefully um, beginning of January. And then we'll get another cut just before we shut them up, basically in March, probably right. yeah, middle of March maybe. Um, it might not be a heavy cut, but it'll be a cut anyway to then let it grow to get some cover. So uh, we have to buy bales in. And at the moment, I'm budgeting on buying about a third of our bales, hay bales in, because we just can't make hay in this in the spring so we use that as supplement to milking cows yep okay. as far as yeah. paddock selection at the runoff it's basically any, any paddock that's usable to um winter on um you know some of it's that we've got is a bit steep so we'll still steer, steer clear of some of that and go on the better on the flatter paddocks if we can cool yeah and that um yeah your comment about the, the seeds and the species that you're bringing in um Dylan there raises two questions. One is, would you ever consider like basically specifically sourcing your hay, your imported hay from farmers that have those diverse, more diverse pastures and stuff like that? So you can, or would you even consider planting some of your runoff and multi-species so that you can then spread that seed around other parts of the farm through bale grazing? Uh, and then the second question to that, which Dean raised there is, um, are you concerned about importing weed species at the same time? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not overly concerned with weed species, but it, it is on, on my mind, yeah, depending on, I probably need to be slight like going checking, 
you know, if you've got stock grazing off, you need to go and check them on a regular basis just to make sure, you know, everyone's happy. So something that maybe if I'm getting bales on, I need to go and look at the pasture that they're harvesting off to see what I'm getting. Um, but I haven't done that yet. I guess I just trust the track contractor that I'm dealing with, who I've had a long relationship with. He kind of knows what I'm wanting. Haven't had that yet. And so that's that's the conversations I guess you have with those people that you're buying stuff in. I know Mark Mark said he um, bought in, uh, a, a half a dozen or a dozen bales off a neighbour off a paddock that was just absolute rubbish. <laughs> and the cows wouldn't even eat the bale. So that you can buy hay that cows don't like. Um, so you do want to make sure that the quality is, you know, of reasonable quality for cows to consume. Um, we, the funny thing, well, I guess interesting part was we bought some uh, ryegrass straw off a, off a neighbour who does um, seed, you know, grows ryegrass for seed. And, um, and so you'd think that most of the seed's gone out of it, but you want to see it's like here. It's so thick, it's unreal. So there's still plenty of seed in those types. So, so don't think that when you're buying straw, there's no seed in it. There's still, still a lot of seed in it. But of course, that's all one species. So that's we're not buying as much of that this year. So that's just all ryegrass coming through. Awesome. What was the other question? Does that, that answer that one? Yeah, I think we'll, uh, we'll I think you answered at least two thirds of it there. Um, yeah. I might bring, bring you in now, Ross, uh, on a similar question to before in terms of the I know you're only um, a season into into the trial and, and observing what's happening at Dylan's place. Um, you know, I assume you've you've seen a bit of what Mark's been up to for for a little bit longer. But what do you see as the potential, based on your observation so far, for this around the country, whether in terms of the opportunity in different environments or perhaps even the need for it in some areas where wintering systems are currently challenged? Yeah. What I've seen thus far, and I'm fairly recent to the, the system, but uh, it looks quite promising. I Initially, I was thinking this might be something that's confined to soils that drain reasonably well, and perhaps not some of the sticky and perfectly poorly drained soils where cows can perhaps punch through that, that surface armour that established pastures provide. But I've been quite intrigued by how well it's worked for Dylan and for Mark Anderson in South Otago, who are both wintering or bale wintering on those sticky pallet soils that we know are structurally vulnerable. I would have thought that that have made a bit of a mess uh, just because of winter. But we've actually, we ran a drone over both properties as well as our field experiment um, to try and quantify how much mud, how much bare ground was there. And the techies are still working on it, but uh, just what I've seen to date, it looks pretty promising. So yeah, I'm, I've been quite surprised how, how well Dylan and, and Mark uh, are making it work for them. And I was, intrigued too by Dylan's comment there around the animal behaviour thing. I do think there is something going on there that is causing the animals to be more settled and doing less walking and treading damage, which is probably a big benefit for uh, soil protection. And it's something that our animal welfare colleagues are going to try and measure uh, for the next two winters at the experimental site at Dylan's. Uh, just to see if we can um, quantify that, uh, basically reduce walking, reduce treading damage. So uh, if I paraphrase what you're saying there, if, if Mark and Dylan can successfully do this on their soils, then um, most of the rest of the country, um, obviously where the contour is appropriate, might have a chance at getting that working as well. Certainly, it's certainly a good proposition. I... Uh, yeah, I'm still intrigued how it would work where rainfall is perhaps closer to a metre southern south and you know, one metre, 1.2 metres of rainfall. Um, so, yeah, that's a sort of science question. We have to get a head around one way or another, but it's quite intriguing how well they've done on those pellet soils. 
Cool. Well, how about we, uh, Dylan, should we bring up the um, one of those videos that gives a bit of an idea of the animal behavior? Because I think that's actually something we should have come back to before just to, because um, it's come up a few times now. Um, so if you just bear with me for a few seconds, should I bring up the frost video? Yeah, or... that's a good one. Yep, either, okay. that's either one. Right. Just, um... Could you hold some footage from me, Dylan? <laughs> Uh, I had my little special holder there. <laughs> okay, so let me get this working. Um, I might just have to do a full screen share. And then pull up. These are carving cows on a frosty morning. Just a very short video. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> what I see there, Dylan, is from my observation of bow grazing is cows are content for longer. Yeah. If you put 12 or 14 kg of kale in front of a cow, in my, my experience, yes, they'll be content, but this is another level of contentment. And I don't know if it's, I, I, I mean, I just said that, you know, if, that question, question comment there that, you know, look, these animals are sleeping in bed, eating in bed. Yeah. Um, so it's got to have something to do with the fact that they don't have to go far to get sustenance, surely. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were meaning eating, eating my bed, not eating in my bed. But... <laughs> no, eating my bed. Yeah. <laughs> um. Look, uh, there's a, a I had I've got a photo of um on, on a video of on the top of that it's been the snow come through right up on top so it's about I don't know fifty to sixty meters above where the uh, the cows are uh, grazing on crop down below and now you can see in the distance they're on crop they're in the mud you know waiting for to be fed um and there's a cow up top and it was pretty cold up up there really you know wasn't extreme but it was certainly very chilling but they were just standing there. Cheering their cat with a big fat gut, um, happy as anything. Um, and so what I've learned through this is that when they the hay, they ruminate more on the hay because it's a lot of fibre, and that rumination causes heat. Ross can probably maybe have to allude on this, and that heat then keeps them warm. Um, when it's low, less fibre in the diet, then they don't ruminate as much, which doesn't have as much heat, which then of course you know digest faster and then I want more feed. Um, hmm. So you know, that was sorry, where you go? Oh, I was just gonna say that was going through my mind too, Dylan, the fiber effect. And I'll have to ask my animal science colleagues if um, if they can shed any insights there because uh, that might be quite important. Mm. Sorry. I was going to just, um, do you know sort of your live weight per hectare with your bale grazing rather than stocking rate because everyone sort of runs different numbers, but a, a live weight per hectare maybe? Um, haven't worked that out, but it won't be hard. So as the kind of the system that we use is 100 cow mobs on half a hectare per break for three days. So if you can equate that out, depends on how, how heavy your cows are. That's pretty much the system we use, you know, give or take half a day the way we try and get, yeah, that's kind of what it is. If it's on hilly country, they get a bit more area because you can't put on all the slopes because it's so steep, but they don't, they still, you know, with a bit extra area, they don't make as much mud anyway. So, yeah, but if you did, if you had 100 cows and you gave them, say, two-day breaks, they make a little bit more mud because there's not as many bales for them to stand on. So you've got more cows and less bales. Or same cows and less bales. So it's just a it's a it's pure physics, really. Having more bales means they've got more areas to stand on more comfortably. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not trekking backwards and forwards to water troughs. And are you yeah, keeping make, are you moving water troughs with the brakes? Yeah, back fencing. Yeah, back fencing, everything. Um, so there's a bit of mud that happens around the trough. Um yeah. and some some that's about leaking troughs and on slopes or you know those things um so we can probably improve on that but i just went through again with those and those patches and just drilled them with the drill um in late september and you'd hardly know now yeah yeah cool 
Um, the I just remembered, Dean. We've actually um, I realised we haven't put. We've got a, a bit of a detailed case study on um, what Mark's up to with his bell grazing system too that we produced a few months ago uh, that we haven't actually linked onto the case study page yet. So we'll do that um, this afternoon um, for anyone that hasn't seen that because there's, there's some good detail in there too um, in terms of some of those implementation questions. Uh, for Claire Ross and uh, for sorry Claire Greg and Dean, um, the three of you are in quite different contexts, mostly um, pretty free draining soils like that Ross was talking about before, um, and you all said earlier that you're considering giving bell grazing a crack. Um, do you have you identified any sort of different challenges or considerations, or do you have any questions um, that you're still working through at the moment in terms of how you implement? I guess just getting a good uh, source of hey, it's good. You want round bales, don't you? Is that that's the, the go with um, bale grazing? Yeah, it is because you can sit them in the paddock for long periods of time and the water runs off them. If it was squares, they just you know they'd, they'd rot and so they'd, they'd be litter, but they wouldn't be food. Food, yeah. And so there's a question there um, I see come through how many bales, et cetera. So it's about 30 bales to the hectare, probably you know, 28 to 30 thereabouts. Um, and they're just spaced out evenly like a grid. Um, and on the whole blocks, you know, I put put a bale on the, as, as steep as I could go without, you know, you could tip it over with your hand, but not, it would stay there. And when we came to come to feed it, we, I just would just tip it over on its flat and take the take the netting off and then so otherwise they end up pushing it down the hill and that's then you lost the bale. So it's kind of just being practical with that. Um, but there's some slopes you just can't do that. So I we haven't done it, but I was, I know um Hamish Belsky talks about talks about rolling it, you know, letting it roll out down the hill. If you've got a run out, that would be good. And they'd eat it and it'd still be litter and stuff like that. So that would work, I think. Yeah. One of the important questions we want to address in years two and three is how effective the hay is as a sponge for soaking up urinary nitrogen because uh, one of the big environmental challenges with wintering is uh, the nitrogen leakage where you, you graze out the crop, you've got bare soil, uh, winter drainage. Uh, we've got a hypothesis that that hay, because of the C2N ratio of it, it's reasonably mature uh, grass mixed in there, that might be uh, a good sponge for holding on to the urinary nitrogen that the animals are uh, urinating onto while they're, they're loafing there. Um, that might be quite an important thing if nitrogen leaching is one of the farm challenges. But yeah, at, at this stage, it's just a hypothesis that we think we need to do some research to, to address. And while you're while you're on that, Ross, um, you know some of us are pretty data driven, um, and you know kind of looking for a bit more data on on how these techniques perform before um, committing potentially. So what other um, what other things apart from nitrogen leaching have you been monitoring at Dylan's place? And what do you you mentioned you were planning to add some new monitoring protocols in years two and three? Yes, uh, the. The winter, the first winter just gone, we spent quite a lot of efforts uh, tracing, dra uh, tracing drainage. Um, so the nitrate leaching figures are key for the, the funders. But the second thing we made a point of was making sure we're doing the, the measures of basically mud. Uh, we've got a, a suite of measures we, we use as proxies of uh, attributes that drive soil erosion risk. We've got a pretty good soil erosion model now that's driven by basically how much mud you produce. Um, so that's that will be key information. In years two and three, our animal welfare colleague is going to get involved and look at basically how settled the animals are, how much they're moving, how clean they are. And then finally, my greenhouse gas research colleagues at Invermay are going to drill into some of the greenhouse gas 
footprints of the bale grazing versus the crop treatment approach. And they'll focus mainly on measuring nitrous oxide and uh, using the inventory calculations for the other, or mainly methane footprints. Brilliant. So we're going to have a going to have a heap of info coming through there. And uh, I think we talked about the other day. So um, Dylan's hosting a field day on the tenth of March down in Southland, um, and we've got a um, placeholder um, event on our events page and on the case study page I think as well um, where you can register for that just to keep keep updated but um, we're hoping that we're going to have a bunch of that first year data available for that field day Ross Yes we'll have as much as we can prepared and summarised the, the nitrogen leaching story uh, there's nitrogen from last winter that's still in the post and on its way to the collectors so it'll be preliminary uh, estimates um, but we're sort of seeing a bit of a separation, well, quite a clear separation in the treatment. So our hypothesis seems to be holding true at this early stage of events. Awesome. Thanks very much. Now, I think we might, um, we've got a question from Ross uh, back on the multi-species, so we might swing back that way um, for a bit and then we can finish off with um, whatever's top of mind or we'll just... Um, Remind those listening in to fire your questions in. We've got about twenty minutes left, so yeah. don't um, don't finish whisking, wishing you'd ask something that you that you didn't get around to. Um, but good question from Ross. Uh, with multi-species winter crops, are people able to winter cows and keep a sward to carry through spring and summer, or are most people re-drilling in spring? Um, if so, what species are surviving and thriving in the spring and summer? Well, none of ours have survived at this stage. Um, last year we were a bit lean on feed, so everything got eaten. Uh, so unfortunately, nothing survived. Um, I had some dry land here at home, and I drilled it. It didn't germinate, but then after the big rain in May, I had a hell of a strike. Like if there's seed there. It, it should germinate if you um, give it a chance. Hope that helps. Yeah, we had the same experience. Um, just yeah, had to graze it quite hard this winter, and we were hoping for regrowth, but didn't see any. Um, so may try to change that species a bit this year to get to get better results. But yeah, no, no success so far. So, you know, I had I think quite it... the opposite result. Um, we had everything recover um, that we um, wanted on. In fact, we've harvested more off those wintering areas during spring than we did during winter. Um, that is an estimate and a guess, but we got two to three grazings off all of our winter area before we blew it out. And it was real sad to blow it out because the diversity that came back was incredible. The facelia and vetch um, regrowth um, and a mainly pasture sward was the main species that recovered. Um, but that's our second year of, of, um, of seeing those recoveries. Um, in fact, our first multi-species winter paddock um, had no has had no glyphosate, and we've just uh, over-drilled twice into it. Um, so the inputs that that area has had has been significantly reduced. No fur um, and no sprays for 24 months now. Cool. Is that a is that a soil type, uh, Dean? You've been to um, Claire and Greg's place. Um, is this, are we talking soil type there, rainfall? Um, like, wh what do you, why have you got good regrowth after your winter crops compared to Claire and Greg? Uh, I'd suggest probably lower stocking rate, uh, and that's all on dry land. So, my uh, challenge this winter will be to see the same recovery on irrigated multi species, which I reckon will be more challenging, um, as Greg and Claire can attest to. Yeah, right. But um, that, uh, there's another question there from Ross, um, another Ross, um, about the same, uh, pretty similar about um, success with an annual winter crop setting seed and regrowing in the spring. And um, Ross, yeah, uh, the the Species that came back, um, right grass, 
Um, but yeah, the facilia and vetch um, are really impressive how well that recovered as well. Yeah, a lot of our seeds got eaten by birds. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've certainly seen mixed results over the last few years around that. Some, uh, like you're talking, Claire and Greg, where um, the, the wet winter and stuff like that means that you, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, whether you're pure kale or whether you've got a whether you've got 50% cereals in there, um, certainly just the nature of winter and dairy cows means that it all basically um, gets gets trampled and doesn't come away. And likewise, I've seen in in dry winters and dairy systems where it's almost been 100% ground cover post grazing and it grows back beautifully. And by the end of August, um, you know, I've seen farmers milking off it. So um, the seems a little bit of a um, I guess there's context and season there as well. Um, but I guess the, the point to take away there is um, I guess you can design, you can design in for these mixes to grow back and have a bit of spring feed there, but you can't guarantee it. Um, we're, we're giving a crack this year with for the Kali and um, an annual ryegrass to, to try and achieve that because we've got a, um, an early spring pinch with uh, using lambs um, that would love to have that feed for, but um, like I say, we'll just see, have to see how the season goes. It's all about protecting that residual there, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Um, what else have I got on the um, on the Māori species? I guess the in terms of, um, despite your experiences there, Claire and Greg, um, and not having that growth, is it still something, is, it, is that early spring regrowth without having to put a drill through, is that still something you're chasing as a goal? Yeah, um, we would like we would like it to happen definitely on a, on a wintering block. Yeah, because we keep the young stock up there, so it'd be great if we could um, keep grazing the paddocks. It probably hasn't been a priority for us, but uh, yeah, why not? If if we could make it work, we would take it. Yeah, um, we're just, just not there yet. Yeah, I guess the second part of that question comes back to. Um, what we we're talking about before, would you compare uh, um, the mix that Josh Bradfield's got up there um, on the case study page, which is very um, sort of forage quality heavy, not much in the way of grasses in there, versus um, something like the one that you had there, or um, or other ones we're talking about where we have got a higher proportion of grasses and cereals in there, partly for um, you know, they're, they're partly doing the fiber um, fiber in the diet, partly soil cover, partly regrowth post grazing, um, but often there's a um, and I've now, there's been other farmers talk about, and actually some people have even put quite a few perennial grasses in there as well, um, and noticed, I guess, yield penalties potentially um, by pushing that balance too far um, down that line. So I guess last question on that one for me is how do you find that balance? Yeah, that, so it was a summer mouldy species, was half annuals, half uh, perennials. It, once annuals went, there was just too many gaps. So those gaps got filled up with thistles and that sort of rubbish. So that's a, yeah, it's almost all of one or one or none in a way. Yeah. I don't know. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, we're still, we're still learning and playing around. Yeah, don't have a clear answer. I've got one on the platform just went in the other day and... It's sort of perennial heavy, um, but there's others in there that will just try and let it grow out, get a silage, a light silage crop off it rather than that 10, 11 tonne, maybe four or five tonne, and then hopefully the perennials will burst out and hopefully they'll tiller out. I'm a bit worried that they may not if they if we let it go too far. So they're more experimenting. Mm. Thanks. And um, while you're there, Greg, uh, Rebecca's asked uh, that you mentioned at the start the importance of variation and height of the species within the crop. Why is that? Um, well, if you've got all tall stuff, there's nothing underneath. Um, and I think those gaps could be filled with like fibrous oats and that sort of thing. They can chew on as well. Um, there's all gaps there and ground cover as well. I think, yeah. 
but I just see it, it looks good when you've got veg climbing up through um, like your brassicas and that sort of thing, and filling the gaps. You've got so much space there, you can fill it up with variety. Yeah, is it is it you know is it you're trying to utilize light, you're trying to increase yield, you're trying to provide ground oh, cover. weed suppression as well. A bit of weed spray because you can't spray anything once you've got these crops in, you're committed. That's it. What you get is what you get. So if we can um, just have your desirable species growing, you, you should be okay. That's, yeah. And that actually segues nicely to another topic we should touch on, which is um, insect pressure uh, in these crops. And what's your experience been there? Not being able to spray. Positive. Uh, we've had to aphid spray kale, but the multi species just does its business. You see ladybugs getting around, bees, all sorts. Yeah. Yeah. And we there were insects in the paddock, but they weren't, um, you know, causing damage to the crops. They're just eating each other. <laughs> yeah. Well, what little bit of damage there was was insignificant. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, I see the odd like bulb have a bit of you know a bit of chewing on the side and that sort of thing, but leaves weren't getting decimated and you weren't folding um, kale leaves over and seeing them absolutely covered in aphids and so it was just yeah a lot cleaner. I don't know if you remember Sam, but the last paddock of monoculture kale we grew, we drilled for cilia around the outsides and a strip down the middle, um, and we also we didn't spray that paddock for butterfly, because um, we weren't spraying in multi-species anyway, and the, there was very little um, butterfly damage to that crop, and I don't know how Celia did that. I assume that it brought in some beneficials that ate the, the caterpillar maybe, I'm not sure, but um, yeah, we didn't have to use any selective herbicide, uh, insecticide on, on, on that crop. That's something else you can look at doing, and I've seen other farmers do it, is plant some flowers around the outside of your crop paddock. Yeah, true that. So even if someone, um, let's say, let's say you've already drilled your winter crop this year, but you're kind of curious about this conversation, and that would that be would that be a place to start? Is tickle in some phacelia and vetch and a few other flowering species, and and don't spray. Yeah, don't spray the last couple of couple of strips next to those and see and see what happens and build some confidence. Is that a is that a step into this kind of field? Yeah, why not? There's no there's one thing for sure from my experience is you won't get less yield, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had a, um, a seed, some seed arrive on it, must be a bit of a muck up. Back at the depot, um, there was way before I'd even thought about multi-species crop, and it was um, Persian clover. I'd taken a cut of oats off, but there was Persian clover, turnips, and rape all growing together. And um, yeah, it was bloody fantastic going in there. It smelled nice. Mm. Uh, the cows loved it. There was a little bit of trampling. I thought I'll just wastage there, but that paddock's been going really well since then. And there's just, it's a, yeah, the whole, it was full. Everything was full from the ground up to the leaf. There wasn't big gaps in between. So, um, and that Persian clover smells beautiful. It's really nice. Yeah, wicked. Um, going to come back to a question on bell grazing from Michael. Um, one of the many benefits of bell grazing is building or rebuilding um, or repairing soil structure. How's that going and how are you choosing paddocks? Back to you, Dylan, I think. I guess that's uh, another reason to select, you know, we select our porous paddocks because uh, uh, obviously got some issues within the soil. That's why the pasture's not growing ultimately. And so those paddocks we have chosen have, have uh, reasonably well compacted. And and um, I guess uh, well, Michael's being a, being a big part of this, so good, good intro to you, Michael. There, I've just got the report in front of me. Actually, it reminded me the pictures of what we went through in that, you know, the same paddock that we got the trial plots in. 
it's probably our worst, or definitely is our worst pick on the farm. Um, and we we uh, in our first year of bale grazing, we um, we did some soil um, visual soil assessments, and uh, within the um, bale grazing litter and then out where the bale wasn't, and saw the differences, etc. And where the bale was, or the litter was, was in in the early well mid spring, so it was very um, waterlogged and there's no no air in the soil was. Uh, I was quite. I was hoping to see a lot, lot, lot more improvement, but actually going backwards, it's thing. And then, and then uh, we came back in March on the, in the same season, and um, completely transformed. So we we did some infiltration tests with, uh, so putting basically a pipe pipe in the ground, pouring two inches of water, and initially, and um, I think not, the water didn't actually drain away. But within an hour, we had to just pull the pipe out and walk away because the water was still sitting in there. It had drained away somewhat, but not much at all. In March, came back to the same thing, and one inch drained away in ten seconds. The second inch drained away in thirteen seconds in the same spot. So, and when you dug the soil up, you wouldn't recognise it. So the, the whole structure changed. There was really good mottling. The root depth was way deeper. Um, there was a lot more worm life. All the things that you expect to see in soil, a good healthy soil, you're seeing right there. And you know when you fold the the soil, this, when you dig it out, you hold it back to see where the cracks come in. It was just falling away and it was more horizontal cracks rather than your, your I'm sorry, more vertical cracks than your horizontal ones, meaning that the water was getting in, which is what we're seeing visually with the water infiltrating as well. So that was that was like, wow, this is incredible. And um, we've just done that again back in this, this spring in the same paddock and uh, whether it's, you know, because it was wet or not, it got fallen back a little bit, but um, we envisaged that and coming back in March again this coming year, the time of year, it's just going to be quite different again. So, <clears throat> uh, but digging up, you know, look, I'm just looking at the picture here that we took, um, the, the root depth in those original bale litters patches was, and, and the soil itself was way better structure than where the bale hadn't been. Um, and that was 12 months on. So, yeah, the proof is there that the, the bow grazing definitely does improve your soil health. I think, um, Sam, uh, something I asked Mark during his interview that never made the cut was, you know, how applicable, we did start talking about this at the start of this convo, how applicable was bow grazing to, for example, lightly drained mid-cannery irrigated soils like what I'm dealing with. And I'd be interested to know if uh, Ross concurs on this, but from Mark's experience, he sees the benefits, first and foremost, is building organic matter. Secondly, is water infiltration, and obviously that's leading to hopefully less irrigation. So those are the benefits that I'm kind of punting on if I do give it a try that I'd be looking, um, looking for. Uh, and so going back to that question about which paddocks, uh, no, some of our farm was ex-pine forestry, so that might be the place where I try because I know that the soil's really shallow there and that's going to help to boil build that um, a little bit. Ross, do you think, you know, from a, you know, that water infiltration, is that going to be more of a benefit than the building of the soil, the organic matter, do you think? Yes, I, I think there's probably quite a... A number of beneficial things going on there in terms of maintaining or improving soil quality. Um, just as an aside, I, I'm down here in Southland digging holes, doing quite a lot of visual soil assessments, and you can see the punishment that uh, paddocks that are one, two years out of crop are showing. Um, and that combination of cultivation, treading, do it all again for a, a second year, most probably. Those soils are um, are pretty punished. So, if we can minimise that treading damage, as Dylan and Mark seem to be doing, that can only be good. We won't be burning off the good soil organic matter that pasture roots are putting down. But I'd be pretty keen to see uh, you guys in Canterbury giving the bale grazing a go because. To be honest, I was, I was quite curious about 
the in-leaching benefit, and you guys are quite challenged with groundwater issues. Um, I think uh, there's a good hypothesis there just on the nitrogen leaching reduction alone that would be great to get some, some quantitative data on. Yeah. I've got a I've got a trial site for you, Ross. If you uh, want to replicate up here, <laughs> the, only, uh, the only challenge, and you'll notice I'm not volunteering to do the digging, but uh, getting a method that can can work on your stony soils is uh, is quite daunting. So hmm. I'll have to ask my colleagues at Lincoln uh, about the best way forward on that because I'm sure we can do something. Cool. I'm, I'm finding this, it's, it's a kind of a counter, counterintuitive conversation we're having here about um, restoring your worst paddocks by wintering on them, um, which I'm kind of just having an internal chuckle at, but um, I love it. I love the concept. Uh, now, we're, uh, we've just gone one o'clock, so we'll just try and wrap up. I've got a, um, a final question, and actually Rebecca's got a, got a nice one that dovetails in quite nicely with it. Um, and so Rebecca's question is, as you all learn more about winter grazing, what will you do or try in winter 2022 that you haven't done previously? Um, and I'm going to back that up with a secondary question to answer afterwards, which is um, if you're talking to a farmer who has a low appetite for risk but is keen to give something a crack, what's your advice? So what are you doing next year uh, that's different? And what's your advice for someone who's keen just to try something? Anyone want to take a crack? Dylan, I might, uh, I might throw you up first and then we'll go. So we'll go Dylan, Claire, Greg, Dean. How about that? Yeah, cool. Um, well, I guess the pattern for us has been, this is uh, coming, we're going to our third winter coming end of this season. First year we did two paddocks and we carved on them. Second year we done half the herd on bale grazing this year we're going whole herd so i guess that's the change in what we're doing we're going away from crops we've put one crop in and that's just to put our young stock on um, and i'm hoping uh, just to put a focus on the bale grazing just with the whole herd and after that i'm hoping that we can start bale grazing the, the young stock as well um, one of the differences within the bale grazing though would be that we're going to try and look at uh well, making sure our hay quality is still maintained to be good but um, more about our grass, we had a dry, like, like everyone did, it had a dry, a dry autumn, which meant that some of our, a lot of our grass um, stored during that autumn period for our winter was really dry and, and poor quality. So, uh, and we cut our, cut our, we didn't do a, a last cut before we shut up. So we're going to do, try that to have more leafy stuff going into, into the winter. And um, whilst that didn't have a detrimental effect on where we wanted the cows going to calving, and we believe we can get it better. So, um, yeah, that's probably, and some of my advice, <clears throat> give, just give a little bit of your farm, like Dean was mentioning. Um, if you can sacrifice, well, not sacrifice, but um, put, a, put aside one paddock or half a paddock or just try two, two hectares or one hectare with 15, 30 bales and just see what happens. And, and that'll, that's exactly what we did, really, and that's how we've got to where we are. Yeah, and what you've got haven't got much to lose. Awesome, thanks, Dylan. Claire. Uh, so we're going to try again with the diverse crops with a few different um, blends in it. This winter we will try to keep um, two herds separate, so we'll have one herd on conventional kale and one um, herd on the diverse crop. So hopefully we can get a bit more information from the animal health side of things as well. Um, and we are planning to try. Um, the bale grazing as well on a few paddocks so that that should be good um, and yeah in terms of advice it would be similar just to start small um, we yeah as I said we put in kale in the ground as a safety net for us make sure that we still have whatever happens um, we still have feed for the cows so yeah try to not just go guns blazing <laughs> awesome thanks Claire Greg um we didn't quite get the, the yield we wanted last year from either the kale or the um, mixed crop. The mixed crop was probably more just uh, management. A block nozzle on the pivot over a big area reduces your yield. 
there in dryland country. So just probably been getting the little things right there. So if we can grow more um, crop, we can feed less supplements, so less tractors running around. Cows are, well, the young stock will be had a lot more settled, so less movement. Um, that's what we're going to target. And advice for somebody, if you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up. You know, I've made truckloads and it's just part of the deal. Um, but yeah, don't beat yourself up over it. And look at it. Okay, well, we've just got to change it a little bit and it might work better next time. So um, have a go, but yeah, give yourself a break. Same time. Oh, thanks, Greg. Dino. Uh, yeah, just as I mentioned before, we're going to try and simulate our re multi-species recovery under irrigation. So hopefully we can get similar sort of recovery. I'm not even sure why I think that it won't recover as well under irrigation, but just from Greg's and Claire's uh, experience this past winter with very difficult and challenging conditions, I think that it will just by nature of the soil and land being softer, that it will be more difficult to see the same recovery. So fingers crossed. Um, and as far as advice, uh, if you haven't tried any multi-species, it might even be a good idea to try in your, in your pasture sward first, get brave with adding some chicory and some plantains and some different types of grasses in a, in a grass paddock. And you'll see very quickly that there's nothing to be afraid of. And maybe that way you'll feel more brave to give it a shot in your extremely valuable um, wintering area because obviously that you know that's the risk is that you know your wintering area is under so much pressure to to yield to feed your cows that uh, it might be a little bit daunting so yeah try try your pasture sward. Beauty. thanks Dane and um, Ross have you got any um, final points or thoughts you'd like to share before we wrap up? Uh no, I'm just really interested in, in what's going on and keeping an eye on all these responses that individually they're quite significant, it seems to me, and collectively uh, are quite important, I think. Um, I was going to comment, it doesn't come up, but one of the benefits we are really interested in is the, the catch crop effect of Dylan's uh, winter pasture. I'd be quite amazed at how quickly that pasture has come back into the round. And to me, that's acting as a really efficient catch crop. You know, and there's some, there's some good data around the, um, the benefits of catch crops, of, uh, like an oats catch crop or something like that, usually in terms of the nitrogen that they do take up and keep out of the waterways, isn't there, Ross? So you'd assume the pastures are doing as good, if not better job with the big root systems that they've got established in there. Yes. Yep. Yeah, cool. Brilliant. Dylan, have you got one more thing you're pitching to say there, or is that... Uh... Oh, I was just going to add to the... Uh, just to say that, the, that those paddocks that we carved on, they'll be... So we, we eat them off in, in August, and they'll back in the round by the middle of October. So they come in the second round, halfway through the second round, so let's see how fast they come in. Wow. It's good recovery. I think we were. Yeah. I think we were. Um, we were just sowing oats into our winter crops in mid October. So let alone <laughs> milking off them. Um, Already. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Well, thanks. Um, thanks very much. Uh, to all five of you for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, and same to the those who were on the webinar and um, for firing those questions through. Um. I love these conversations uh, and it's amazing how much we can get out of you know, a group of people like yourselves in such a short amount of time. So um, I hope others watching this now and, um, and watching the recording feel the same. Um, just a couple of reminders from me. Uh, again, um, the field day that Dylan's hosting on the 10th of March down in Southland. Um, jump on the Quorum Sense website through the events page there and you can register for that. There's no details at the moment, but we'll um, once it's updated, we'll fire out an email on to everyone that's registered and make sure that you know. Uh, really looking forward to that. I'll be there. Um, and we'll get uh, all the data that Ross is collecting um, as it becomes available. We'll keep that case study page up to date. Um, there's also a huge amount of information coming through on the Align Farms 
um, website, courtesy of Claire, um, that did a big release uh, about a week or two ago. Um, and they've got a few farm works ongoing at the moment. So um, we'll make sure that we add that link to our page as well. So it's easy to find. But if you just Google um, Align Farms, you'll find that some great work that Claire's been doing there. She's also helping us out at Quorum Sense as well, which is great. And um, finally, yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, the, the, the point of these case studies is to, is really to support farmers going from where they are to where they want to be. Um, and part of that is a whole, you know, the, there's a heap of detail and, and information involved in, in these practices that we're talking about and ultimately system changes. Um, and we're keen just to kind of collect as much as we can and, and make that accessible to help people take that next step. So if anyone's got questions, you know, has gone through that case study material and have got questions. If you've got that question, then chances are is that there's a 30, 50 other farmers with the same one. Um, so if you can flick that to us, we can do um, we can do what we can to try and pull some information together and make that accessible so that um, this case study page becomes, um, you know, a resource that can, can really get people quite a long way along that decision-making path. Um, and hopefully not necessarily guaranteeing success initially, but um, certainly learning something. So um, thanks again for your time. This uh, has been recorded, so we'll, um, we'll make that, get that up online as well. And if you've got people that you know that you think would be really keen to watch it, make sure that you share this with them. Otherwise, thanks very much and hope everyone has a good afternoon.